Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Colin Lennon, Professor Emeritus at NUI Maynooth. His paper was entitled Protestant-Catholic Relations in 17th-Century Ireland, a case study of St. Odoin's Parish, Dublin. Recent scholarship comparing the position of Catholic communities in states where Protestantism was the state religion has shown that quotidian relations between the confessional groups were generally amicable, characterised by William Shields as a process of getting along with neighbours. The field of confraternity studies, moreover, has pointed to salient continuities in the formation of a new social order throughout early modern Europe, with late medieval corporate institutions proving to be adaptable to the task of community building after the Reformation, especially in the area of poor relief. Notwithstanding some instances of confessionally-based exclusion of all but the doctrinally committed, In practice, an eclectic approach prevailed, as in the case of Ireland, where the traditional parish structure, with its inherited institutions and lay officials, came to bear the weight of civil as well as ecclesiastical administration. After 1560, when ownership of the parishes fell to the Anglican state religion in Ireland, the small minority of Protestants from long-established families, thus enfranchised, turned out to be viscerally opposed to rigorous confessionalising tendencies on the part of some newcomers from England who represented the colonial elite under the Tudor and Stuart regimes. By contrast, perhaps Due to a strong sense of brotherhood and sisterhood, which they shared with them, the native Protestants strengthened their ties with their Catholic fellow urban dwellers, joining with them in defence of corporate rights and liberties in the face of state-sponsored political and social innovation and the protection of civic and confraternal institutions, including hospitals and almshouses. As a case study of interconfessional relations in an urban milieu, that of 17th century Dublin, I've chosen the history of the intramural parish of St. Audouin on High Street. This is not only because of its central role in urban society and religion, but also because of the availability of fairly rich documentation of parish affairs. The recent publication of the Vestry Records, edited by Murray McVerrocu, most usefully brings together hitherto scattered remains in archival collections as an illustration of the life of the parochial community. There is also a huge collection of records of what could be termed a parallel socio-religious institution in St. Audwin's, the Fraternity of St. Anne. And that this includes the minute books, property deeds, accounts, and a dedicated volume recording charitable donations upon which I would like to focus. By examining the minutes of the vestry and the fraternity meetings, I wish to explore the question of interconfessional relations and continuities, and in particular, to investigate the attitudes underpinning poor relief as administered by the two bodies. 
A study of aspects such as membership patterns and the grounds for assistance of pauperism down to the early 1700s may illuminate how the interplay of traditional and innovative models of social solidarity helped the process of community building at parish level and the preservation of old bonds across the religious divide. In the 1570s, St. Alduin's had been described as the best in Dublin for that the greater number of the aldermen and the worships of the city are demurrant within that parish. Yet while housing a preponderance of the civic elite on thoroughfares such as High Street, Cook Street and Merchant's Quay, the 17th century parish had a varied social mix to judge by the cess lists in the vestry book and it also contained at least two almshouses and the civic schoolhouse, as well as the jailhouse at Newgate. A recent estimate has put the population of the parish at about 2,500 in 1636, rising to about 3,500 in 1702. In terms of its denominational composition, the 1630 report of, uh, for Archbishop Bulkley of Dublin stated that three quarters of the households in St. Audouin's were Catholic. That majority had weakened dramatically by the end of the century, especially due to the influx of Protestant families from England and the continent, uh, drawn by its centrality in the commercial and cultural life of the city. The parish was prebendal of St. Patrick's Cathedral, and the incumbent's parochial duties could occasionally be performed by a curate. During the 70-year span examined here, the vestry on which were represented some leading families in the Irish Reformation, such as Ball and Usher, as well as newcomer ones such as Wybrants and Percival, oversaw the maintenance and furnishing of the parish church, the payment of the minister's stipend, and the care of the poor and needy. Despite their numerically disadvantaged position, for most of the century, the older established Protestants successfully negotiated the changing religious and social currents with minimal communal disruption through their largely effective management of relations with the large Catholic community in the parish. While the houses of the Protestant and Catholic families of St. Odoans were intermixed throughout its streets, the communities had long gone their separate ways in terms of centres of worship. By 1618, there were at least three Catholic mass houses operating outside the ambit of the parish church, two located in private residences, and one actually in the meeting hall of the Fraternity of St. Anne, contiguous to St. Audouin's. The body of the parish church itself was divided into the southern nave, occupied by the chapel of St. Anne's Isle and a private chantry, and the northern older nave and sanctuary where Anglican worship was conducted. St Anne's Chapel was kept in repair throughout most of the 17th century, and there are records of Catholic burials there during that period, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that in Amy's paper. The vestry book contains much information on the reconfiguration of, of space, including the, the dismantling of the rood loft in 1639 and the repair of the church in general. The latter was a major concern after the collapse of the church spire in 1668. 
Records of the parish cess show how the funds collected from households were distributed for these projects, as well as for the payments of the clergy's stipend and the relief of the poor. Despite the fact that the parochial incumbent was technically in receipt of a reasonable income of 100 marks per annum, certainly by comparison with other city parishes, there were perennial complaints about the minister being starved of funds. In this connection and others, vestry affairs became entangled regularly with those of the separate but shadow body, the Fraternity of St. Anne. That institution had come in for criticism in the report of 1630 to the Archbishop for its having swallowed up all the church means which should be for the minister and reparation of the church. I've used the history of this wealthy, devotional and charitable association in St. Audion's parish before as a barometer of the religious climate in late medieval and early modern Dublin and its voluminous documentation is currently the subject of a digitisation project by the Royal Irish Academy. Founded by Royal Charter in 1430 as a chantry of six priests, the fraternity had remained in Catholic hands after the Reformation down to the 1630s, notable recusants serving as officers and controlling the leasing of its extensive property portfolio um, in town and countryside. Hostile investigators pointed to a copy in the Fraternity's muniments of a papal decree of 1569 enjoining all Catholic confraternity members to lease lands to their co-religionists only and to use the income derived for the provision of Catholic worship. Notwithstanding this injunction, however, the rent roll of St Anne's Fraternity continued to include the names of Protestants, prominent Protestants, and indeed a Protestant um, parishioner, Robert Ball, filled the mastership at a time when the Fraternity's charter was being challenged in the 1620s largely at the initiative of the prebendary of St. Audouin's in the early 1630s, a full-scale inquiry into the activities of St. Anne's under the aegis of Thomas Wentworth was followed by an attempted state church takeover of the institution. The attempted coup failed, and among the reasons posited at the time for Wentworth's downfall was his interference in the affairs of St. Anne's fraternity. Meanwhile, the fraternity continued on as a parish institution for many decades from the early 1640s with a mixed Protestant Catholic membership. It was principally through their continuation or continuing participation in the fraternity of St. Anne that the Catholic community retained a corporate presence in the parish and indeed municipality through the ecclesiastical uh, political uh, and political embroglio of the mid to later 17th century. Despite the periodic conflicts between them over the funding of parish buildings and personnel, and indeed the more substantial issue of the warrant of St Anne's within the parish, the two bodies, vestry and fraternity, offered channels for Protestant parishioners and Catholic residents to assure their social and economic circumstances through internal and mutual cooperation. The membership lists of the two institutions are seen to bear this out, insofar as the religious affiliation of individuals may be identified. 
While Catholic members of the vestry became scarce after the 1630s, and only two were elected as church wardens, a Catholic was very frequently chosen as one of the two sidesmen or assistants down to the 1690s. And this reflects the pattern, though in reverse, in the larger civic corporation in the earlier 17th century in which one of the two sheriffs was normally a Protestant. When it came to the system of parish cess on households, a large number of which were Catholic, their co-religionists were frequently appointed alongside Protestants as assessors and collectors, no doubt to present a more acceptable face for the levy. It may be significant that the first complaints about Catholic non-compliance occur in the early 1690s, when the vestry began to appoint exclusively Protestant assessors and collectors. While notable Catholic citizens such as Alderman John Dowd and Michael Chamberlain figure as vestry members only infrequently, the former in the pre-1640s period, the latter in the highly charged later 1680s, there were regular appointments to office below the church wardenship of members of Catholic families, many of them such as Archbold, Ash, Cadell, Dowdall and Taylor with connections to St Anne's fraternity. From the late 1630s to the early 1700s, with the exception of the 1680s, the masters and two wardens of the fraternity of St Anne were Protestant, usually prominent aldermen, such as Christopher White, William Smith, Sir William Dixon, John Bohr and Peter Wybrunts. Bohr, Dixon, Wybrunts and White had experience of serving as church wardens or sidesmen of St Alduin's parish, while Smith, a long-serving city councillor, was a parishioner and churchwarden of the parish of St John the Evangelist. He was thrice Lord Mayor of Dublin and was noted, among other deeds, for presiding over the building of the new Thalsall, or City Hall. These substantial merchant figures were evidently qualified to manage the considerable financial resources of the fraternity, which arose from its extensive rent roll but they also played a full part in supervising the fraternity's charitable role and, when necessary, defending its chartered privileges in the face of parochial claims. The long-standing prebendary of St Audouin, William Lightburn, also sat in on meetings of the fraternity between 1655 and 1677. Among the membership were men and women from long-established civic families who traditionally had ties to the fraternity, including William and Ignatius Purcell, Robert Christopher and Walter Kennedy, Robert Plunkett, Michael Chamberlain, Cecily and Matthew Barnwall, and Margaret Jans, almost all of whom were certainly Catholics. The women members were also probably in this category, Anne Ball, Catherine Clark, Margaret Cooper and Claire Taylor being related to former brothers or sisters, and some of them themselves being petitioners to the Fraternity for Charitable Relief. This pattern of mixed membership obtained down to the early 18th century and beyond, but during the mid to later 1680s it appears that Catholic members briefly gained a majority position. Relief of poverty was a responsibility undertaken by both vestry and fraternity in the early modern period. 
The operation of both regimes, each based on specific grounds of entitlement, nativity and deservingness, spoke very clearly to different conceptions of parochial and civic community. In the absence of a proper national poor law in the 17th century, the vestry of St. Audwin's oversaw the dispersal of a proportion of the parish cess for the alleviation of poverty and neediness. In the later century, the vestry records of St. Audwin's refer to the parish poor list, comprising some 20 to 26 people who were allowed to receive a welfare pension on the satisfaction of certain criteria. Although these are not specified in the case of St. Audwin's, other Dublin parishes insist on denizenship within the parish and being in the category of deserving poor, that is, either chronically sick or destitute due to ill fortune. By the 1680s, the vestry was expending £33 per annum out of cesses and special collections on pensions to the parish poor, in addition to supporting a number of abandoned infants left on the parish. The names of some of those approved for relief survive, and they include members of old civic families such as Plunkett, Duff and Fagan, as well as some Gaelic immigrants. On the face of it, there was no recorded discrimination on the grounds of non-conformity to the state religion, but the parochial framework within which aid was dispensed implied the requirement of confessional loyalty. Nor was there any mention of registration or badging of beggars or the expulsion of the undeserving poor, as happened in other parishes, but vagrancy and illegal begging certainly were referred to in vestry meetings as presenting a problem. Charity then, in the parish context, embracing the local and respectable poor, was a facet of vestry administration, drawing upon springs of communal and probably confessional solidarity and laying the foundations of a more streamlined system of relief in the 18th century. While the parish may have operated a more formal system of poor relief, the Fraternity of St Anne dealt on an individual face-to-face basis with petitions from the distressed and infirm members of respectable families with confraternal ties which had fallen on hard times. Grants were sought from the accumulated rental income of St Anne's on the grounds of the pious uses for which the institution was founded. Many widows with children requested charity on account of their penury, rental arrears or poor living conditions. Some such as Mary Cooper, a regular petitioner who had three children, and Anne Ball were themselves members of the fraternity. And all of the importunate were careful to stress the descent from formerly ascendant civic families such as Weston, Handcock, Goff, Jans and Luttrell and their connections to former brothers and sisters of St Anne's. Sums ranging from £5 to 20 shillings were granted as charitable offerings, as well as gifts of coal and forgiveness of rent arrears. Particularly pitiable was the plight of those elderly citizens, such as Mary Golding, nay Luttrell, aged 80 years, a daughter, as she said, of old Thomas Luttrell, whose fidelity to the crown, generosity and public spirit were known to the best of the kingdom, and who had become destitute as a result of the 1641 rebellion. 
scions of once proud and affluent families that had played a leading role both in civic and fraternity affairs included members of the Plunkett, Sedgrave, Kennedy, Jans and Malone families, all of which were represented among the officers of St Anne's at the apogee of its recusancy in the early decades of the century. Robert Plunkett, Lord of Rathmore, a Catholic brother of St Anne's of 40 years standing in 1658, had had his estate sequestered as a result of the rebellion of the 1640s and was imprisoned for debt in the Marshalsea. Similarly, Edward Jans, grandson of the late Alderman Edmund Jans, a former master of the fraternity, had lost everything in the rebellion and had been forced to go to sea. Having been captured off Algiers, he was held by pirates for a ransom of 400 crowns. In his plea for alleviation, he cited the example of his grandfather, who, as brother of the fraternity, had contributed to the protection of others in their day of calamity. These petitioners were afforded relief by the fraternity on the basis of familial and fraternal claims on its resources, without, apparently, discrimination as to religious creed or even parish residency. In thus alleviating the plight of the familiar or shame-faced poor and maintaining the dignity and pride of former elite families, the fraternity acted as a traditional bridging agency in these instances across confessional and geographical lines. For a period culmination in the uh, late 1680s, the heterogeneity manifested in both institutions under review was threatened with scission, as religious orthodoxy became a major political consideration. In 1679, the new prebendary of St. Audouin's, John Finglas, initiated legal proceedings for the abolition of St. Anne's fraternity on the basis of its chartered status as Chantry College, and the vexed question of the applicability of its resources to parish purposes. The campaign, which ultimately failed, undoubtedly destabilised relations in vestry and fraternity, as did the upheavals of the later 1680s. While the vestry minutes provide no hint of these momentous events, the sundering of bonds is reflected in the exclusion of Catholics after 1690, even from the lesser <coughs> officerships that they were accustomed to occupy from time to time. By contrast, a Catholic majority briefly held sway in St. Anne's fraternity from 1687 to 1690 <coughs> under the leadership of Master Michael Chamberlain and Wardens Christopher Mappas and Christopher Cruz. During that time, Bartholomew St. Lawrence, newly designated parish priest of St. Audience, and five other Catholic clergy, including Michael Moore, the new provost of Trinity College, were appointed to the six chantry chaplaincies, which had been established in the Foundation Charter of 1430, each to celebrate worship every day and to be paid an annual stipend from the fraternity. In addition, Father St. Lawrence appealed to the Duke of Tyrconnell for a top-up of his parochial stipend from the funds of the fraternity. In 1692, a meeting of the fraternity, attended by six Protestants, vacated, disannulled and made void this reversion to a devotional role for St Anne's. Notwithstanding any divisiveness caused by the prebendary of St Anne's campaign for its closure and the brief flaunting of its Catholic past, 
the fraternity of St. Anne continued to include, under Protestant leadership, a coterie of Catholic men and women among its membership down to the 1700s. It resumed its regular business of managing properties and rentals, and also the granting of suits for the alleviation of distress. Among those accommodated on several occasions after 1690 were Elizabeth Cooper, daughter of a long-lived sister of the fraternity, Mary, whose ancestry included Alderman Nicholas Weston and Michael Hancock, and also Michael Chamberlain, whose namesake was fraternity master 100 years previously. Michael Chamberlain was helped with regular donations of up to £20 as a brother of the fraternity, who by the misfortunes of the late times is much reduced to great poverty. Thus, confraternal bonds based on shared brotherhood and sisterhood over several generations continue to hold fast in the early 18th century in respect of the relief of the shame-faced poor. In conclusion, alternative models of poor relief, as reflected in parish and fraternity approaches, ensured that a range of deserving members of the parish and its former ascendant families could gain access to benefits. As aspects of the parish system, most notably the agency of the church wardens, were incorporated into a new legal framework in the 18th century, the confessionalisation of the Anglican community of St. Odwin's proceeded apace to the exclusion of the Catholics. Moreover, the establishment of state and civic institutions such as the Bridewell and Workhouse for confining mainly those seen as the undeserving poor represented a rigorous regime at odds with the earlier parochial forms of welfare. It's interesting, on the other hand, that the fraternity of St. Anne became, in the later 18th century, more a charitable club, which devoted most of its funding to the maintenance of the Blue Coat School for poor scholars. By that time, however, the Catholic population of St. Audwin's was being catered for by a new chapel on Cook Street under an ecclesiastical revival that incorporated new sodalities and confraternities and that adumbrated its own form of confessional solidarity. Thank you very much.